Another U-turn by Trump banning transgender people from the military. It's almost like a trap, isn't it? It's kind of, right, now you've identified yourselves, we're going to throw you out. Plus... These aircraft are a game-changer when it comes to taking the fight to the, to the insurgents. The Afghans get new combat capabilities, but who's tooling up the Taliban? British defence chiefs have backed transgender people serving in the forces after President Trump said he was reimposing a ban in the United States. The president announced the policy change yesterday in a series of tweets. Earlier, I spoke to Caroline Page, the first openly transgender officer in the British forces who served in the RAF. I asked her what she made of the news. It was uh, an initial reaction of shock uh, because it came completely out of the blue. Um, uh, but also it is one of um, a mix of sadness and anger, I guess, because uh, there's an awful lot of people uh, who that's put in a, a really bad place. And uh, I just felt sorry for uh, my uh, American friends um, because one minute they're told that uh, open transgender service is uh, fully acceptable and they step forward and identify themselves and it's almost like a trap isn't it it's kind of right now you've identified yourselves uh, we're uh, we're going to throw you out the uk armed forces do accept transgender people the mod has said we will continue to welcome people from a diverse range of backgrounds including transgender personnel what was your experience when you said you wanted to reassign your gender Mine was one of uh, worry and fear to start with because I'd served uh, quite some considerable time in a military that wasn't tolerant to LGBT. It was, In fact, it was illegal. Um, so I uh, was uh, quite worried in the first half of my career about being um, outed uh, and being thrown out and losing my family and friends. Um, but it came to a point in my life where I realised uh, the value of life and living your own life and being true to yourself. And so I stood up and accepted those consequences. And uh, I was uh, really nicely, so pleasantly surprised that the um, the military turned around and said, um, we value you, we want you to stay in. How do we work through, um, how do we work through this? And Caroline, uh, since you went through your transgender reassignment, um, how did that affect your work as an RAF navigator? Did you, do you think it helped in any way? It didn't affect my um, work in any um, kind of uh, way in terms of qualifications and things like that or what I was able to do. What it did do was relieve so much stress and worry because, uh, you know, I, every day I was worried that somebody was going to knock on the door and tell me that I was out of a job. And there's a certain amount of stress there. And when people say, you know, the mental stresses on transgender people. Actually, that is whilst you're having to hide. And once you're free to be yourself, uh, all of that goes away and you're able to focus on your job. And I was able to do that 100 mm. percent and put everything into just living my life and uh, doing my job. And that was proven because, you know, I went on operations. Mm. I did two tours in Bosnia, four in Iraq, four in Afghanistan. And I won uh, awards for exceptional service in uh, Iraq and Afghanistan. Um, so, you know, being transgender wasn't an issue. I was good at my job. I did my job. And the military uh, respects that. If you can do your job, that's what they want. 
And that was Caroline Page, the first openly transgender officer in the British forces, talking to me a little earlier. Well, I'm joined now by Simon Marks from Feature Story News in Washington and our defence analyst, Christopher Lee. Uh, Simon, it's 24 hours since President Trump tweeted that new policy idea. What's happened since then? Well, everybody here has been scrambling, Kate, to understand where this came from, whether President Trump laid any of the appropriate groundwork for that announcement and what it means. And the people scrambling, of course, include the thousands of transgendered personnel serving in the US military, some of them right now in the theatre in Iraq and Afghanistan. Uh, They want to know if Donald Trump is basically saying to them, you're fired, stop showing up for work, uh, return uh, home if you're currently serving overseas. What does it mean for them? Reporters want to understand uh, whether in any way the Pentagon was meaningfully informed of the president's decision. The White House claims that General James Mattis, the defence secretary, was informed ahead of Donald Trump taking to Twitter. There is no indication that that is true whatsoever. The Pentagon appeared completely blindsided yesterday by what the president had done and James Mattis himself is described as appalled over the president's action and lawmakers have got questions for President Trump as well not just Democrats who of course have assailed this decision but some very prominent Republicans Senator Orrin Hatch of Utah he's third in line for the presidency he issued a public statement yesterday condemning what the president had done and to all of these questions the White House literally has no answer they simply say this was a military decision and it will now be up to the Pentagon to figure out how to implement it. The Pentagon, as I say, appears to have been utterly blindsided by it. A military decision. Christopher Lee, will Donald Trump actually push this through, do you think? Well, he he doesn't have to, does he? I mean, the point is he can say, well, we do this and the military got to look at it and then it never gets done or whatever. Nothing's been signed or whatever. Can I just make one very quick point? There's a comparison. Um, um, Caroline Page, you were talking to earlier, she doesn't have to say she is a transgender officer. If you go into the British forces now, uh, there is no such... T- the, the term is there, obviously, but there's no such thinking, and that's extraordinarily important, and that doesn't happen in other services in other countries that I've come across anyway, and I, that's a point to make. The other thing is, can you honestly believe, Simon, that uh, President Trump uh, said this the way he did? Uh, isn't everything that he says, people say, well, why would he do that? What does he mean by that? It's totally contrary. It doesn't make any sense doing it, and therefore you have to start looking and and wondering if there is something deeper down, there's something actually wrong with this man, quite frankly, that he would come up with something so idiotic and unnecessary that could only damage his reputation even further. Well, so, Mark, the tweets are out there, aren't they? Um, Mm. He wrote what he wrote. Um, How is this going down? I mean, you say there's so much confusion about how how to interpret what he, he wants to do. Well, I mean, total confusion and also very real questions for the White House that they have no answer for. Is the US government prepared now to spend the enormous amounts of money that will undoubtedly be required to defend this decision legally? Because transgendered groups, of course, are going to uh, argue that this is discriminatory policy on the part uh, of Donald Trump acting as his role, not just as president, but as commander in chief uh, of US forces. And again, panoramically, the idea that you announce a policy shift of this significance 
on Twitter without apparently having developed any kind of background briefing that you can give to reporters to explain what precisely uh, this means. You know, within the last hour, we've learned that Melania Trump, the president's wife, is going to be the official US representative at the Invictus Games. And I did a bit of digging around, and there was at least one transgendered US Army sergeant who won a medal <sighs> in last year's Invictus Games. Will transgendered military personnel now be able to compete in the Invictus Games? It's a small question, I but it's it a very important one. Uh, Simon, it depends entirely on how much cosmetic surgery you've had. <laughs> Just uh, one of America's most respected commentators says Donald Trump's a coward. This is Jill Abramson writing in today's Guardian. Why would she say that, Christopher? Um, because when she lists a number of things, there's a whole column. And um, uh, Jill Abramson is, is, is some writer. She was, I think, managing editor of the New York Times. Very respected, very cautious of what she writes. She lists 14 uh, elements that he's gone into and hasn't gone the extra mile to make things happen. I mean, for example, when she says that uh, he's trying to get rid of his attorney general, she said he's too much of a coward. He'll never actually do that. And here's an example of announcing something which is quite remarkable. And in her opinion, he's too much of a coward to take it and force it through. All right, we'll leave it there for the moment. Gentlemen, thank you. Simon Marks in Washington, thank you. Sit rep with Kate Still to come, an RAF jet scrambled in Romania to see off the Russians and the latest from Libya. BFBS SIPREP. New aircraft delivered to the Afghan Air Force are going to change the game in the fight against the Taliban. That's according to the most senior RAF commander in Afghanistan. Our reporter Ali Gibson has been speaking to Air Commodore Steve Lushington, deputy commander for the country's NATO Air Command. He says new light attack aircraft, helicopters and transport planes will change the way the security forces take on the insurgents. The Afghan National Army is involved in a bloody, brutal flight every single day. Uh, and the Afghan Air Force does several things. It enables the move for, of, of troops around theatres, stores, uh, but it also, the, the attack helicopters and the, the Super Tucanos, the A-29s, it allows uh, that joint manoeuvre. So you've got the aircraft supporting the ground manoeuvre um, to, to take the fight to the insurgents. If you look at sort of how they were perhaps a few years ago um, compared to where they are now, how much more operational effect are they starting to have? Two years ago, the Afghan Air Force was, was still on the draftsman's board. Um, 530 aircraft, so the MT-530 light attack helicopters uh, arrived two years ago. Um, and the A-29s have been flying for less than 14 months. So we've taken, um, we've increased the combat power um, of the Afghan Air Force significantly. Um, we have 12 A-29s at the moment, and we have about 15 MD-530s. That's going to grow significantly over coming years on the back of the recapitalization program, which is funded by the United States Department of Defense. That's valued at £6.8 billion, so it's a significant investment in the Afghan Air Force. So all those fleets will increase in size, um, and if you speak to the ground commanders of the Afghan National Army, they want more tomorrow. So there's a, there's a demand signal that can't be, can't be met at the moment, so we're doing our very best to make sure that all those aircraft are used in the most appropriate way. How much of a kind of change of mindset has it been for the security forces to kind of, I guess, sort of realise the real sort of importance and strategic effect that kind of air power yeah. can have? Yeah, we have to be really benevolent when, we're, when, we, when we look at the command and control of the Afghan Air Force. Never before has the Afghan Air Force had such a capable, competent um, set of aircraft. 
uh, these aircraft are a game changer when it comes to taking the fight to the to the insurgents. Uh, when you when you use them in, in conjunction with the commandos for the Afghan National Army and the Afghan Air Force, um, pulling them all together is a really potent force. That potent force needs to be controlled correctly. We need to educate the senior leadership. We need to make sure that command and control of all those forces is appropriate. Um, and it's something which is work in progress. We are working very hard to make sure that the, the senior leaders, many of which have never had the privilege of commanding such a capable force, um, have the best advice. And, and that's part of the role we're doing here. I was say, so that advice is coming um, you know, part, in part from the Royal Air Force. What role are they uh, currently having? So the role of the Air Force, um, my role in particular is I, I'm a senior advisor to, to the chief of the chief of staff of the Afghan Air Force uh, and the chief of their operations directorate. So it's talking about how they best employ the, these, these aircraft. Um, we also have people who are in the plans department, in the communications department and the flight safety department, all looking at how we take forward the Afghan Air Force and making sure that they've got Afghan appropriate procedures and protocols in place so they can manage and command and control this, this growing potent Air Force they have. What do they still need to work on at present? Obviously, we're saying this is you know part of a, a seven-year plan, but if, you know for their sort of immediate goals, what would you say they would be? It's just making sure that they use the right aircraft for the right job. Um, quite often, they will they'll mismatch a task with an aircraft type, and it's this is where we step in to make sure that everything is is, is aligned as good as it can be. Not always can you align all the playing pieces, so sometimes an aircraft may get used for something it's not not perfectly designed for. But ninety percent of the time, we can step in and say. I wouldn't use that platform. What, this is the platform I would use. I wouldn't task it that way. This is the way I would task something. It, it, it's all about making them consider options they've not thought of before. And this is, this is the privilege they're now faced with, which is a lovely, lovely problem to be faced with, but they just need to be given the skill sets to be able to, to, to make those informed decisions. So what's, what's the dream then? What's the kind of grand vision for the end of that kind of recapitalisation programme? Where, do, where are they supposed to be by then? Wow. So it's to help the government of uh, Islamic Republic of Afghanistan to have a safe, secure and stable nation. And um, with that, the, the security pillar is vital. Uh, we need to have an Afghan air force to support the Minister of Defence's intentions. And that air force needs to be um, capable, sustainable, professional uh, and, 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 and is one of the leading air forces in the world. It's, it's going to be a really potent air force in, in, in time. That was Air Commodore Steve Lushington speaking to Ali Gibson and Ali joins me now. Um, Ali, he described the capabilities now of those aircraft that they give to the Afghan forces as a game changer in taking the fight to the Taliban. Just how big an enemy is the Taliban at the moment? It's still a really, really big enemy um, in Afghanistan. I mean, as we know from recent reporting, the Taliban have reclaimed huge areas of Helmand. And you can only look at the news this week, um, the most recent sort of truck bomb in Kabul. The Taliban claimed responsibility for that. Looking at Kabul and Helmand, they're two really, really different areas. Um, they may as well be two different countries in terms of the threat, but both of them are facing attacks from extremism and insurgents. Um, is the problem in Kabul is that you're also getting so-called Islamic State as well. And um, so it's a real challenge to kind of do security for those areas. And you've just returned from Kabul where you did that interview. You were looking at the British contribution there. What is it at the moment? 
So at the moment, you've got about 500 British troops um, in Afghanistan. They're part of the mission to sort of train, advise and assist. That means they're not doing combat fighting anymore. They're just assisting the Afghans. Um, part of that involves actually being an armoured taxi service. So I spent some time with troops from One Royal Irish and they've been in Kabul since December last year. They drive mentors around the city. They allow people that are advising the Afghans to do their job. But they've also been called out, called out three times as part of the Quick Reaction Force. Um, in May, there was a huge truck bomb that hit the edge of the green zone it killed 150 people and so there's a real threat in the city lieutenant colonel graham shannon commanding officer of one royal irish spoke to me about that there's a real and present danger the attacks when they happen there's been some pretty significant attacks since we've been here taking a terrible toll against the afghan civilians as well so you've got that threat environment which we work in just the general complexity of the city now, Ali, the Afghan National Defence and Security Forces now have the lead in Afghanistan. So how are they hoping to tackle this threat? Well, in part, they're hoping to do it by numbers. There's been a huge drive for recruiting, obviously, um, since we left and, and in the years before that. But they're also hoping to tackle it by having better leaders. Um, I visited during this trip, I visited the Afghan National Army Officer Academy, Sandhurst in the Sand. Um, it's basically where they're training all their sort of future leaders. Four years ago, they were learning in tents. Um, they were having their lessons in a car park. Now there is a huge amount of infrastructure at that site. They've commissioned 2,500 officers, 90 females. But it's it's still a real threat that they're facing out on the ground. Um, 13 graduates have died in the last three years. They also are kind of all, always worried about the insider threat and how they're going to tackle that and make sure that they are recruiting people who are who they say they are so i was there for the ninth graduation last week ninth graduation of officers and also visiting was the armed forces minister mark lancaster who said that british support to the academy was going to continue for the foreseeable future this academy really is going from strength to strength and it's the afghans own ambition to bring some of their recent graduates back to instruct themselves so eventually our role will probably reduce but for the foreseeable future we will continue to support sounds positive but considerable challenges ahead Definitely. I mean, they're getting the numbers now, but it's still all about kit and equipment. You heard um, the Air Commodore there speaking about needing to get certain types of aircraft to do the job on the ground. We've also heard from people who've worked in the ANA telling us that they've still got soft skin vehicles to do their jobs. They're still um, facing a huge threat from IEDs and the casualty rates are still very, very high for the ANA. And it's whether, you know, you can get the Taliban into negotiation talks, but so-called Islamic State, that's another problem entirely. Ali Gibson, thank you. Uh, Christopher Lee, Mark Lancaster there, almost hinting that we could be in Afghanistan for the rest of our lives. We've been there since 1838, so why not? Um, What's interesting about this, particularly interesting about this, is the emergence of uh, an Afghanistan with with some form of air force themselves. It takes decades to produce an air force that that can do its own coordination, its own own selection, etc. Now, for example... Um, is get this right, there's no way in which an air force can beat Taliban. An air force doesn't do things like that. What it can do is to provide, for example, rotary aircraft that actually can give you close air support. And it's close air support which eventually beats that sort it of... It is a game changer, though, isn't it, as, the, as, the, as we heard? Well, it, uh, what it is, it changes, but not necessarily for all time. I mean, for example, if you take, take one example out, outside of there, and that is Mosul... If you get IS in Mosul, then you beat it to the ground. You can create dust out of it. Then you've got something. You've achieved something. What you haven't done, you haven't stopped the refugees, ISF refugees, moving on and setting up elsewhere. So let's not put too much on the on the on the air force. Mm. The other thing which is particularly important is the long term. 
if you look uh, uh, look at the uh, officers under training, NCOs, etc., um, you'll actually get a, a, a sense of smartness, a sense of alertness, and a sense of actually bigger understanding than you'd have seen just 12 months ago. Yeah. And we're talking about some people being brought back to the United Kingdom to train them. And once they've done that, they're yours. Because they'll go back and they're very, they have this big thing about my alma mater. This is why you know, I was at Sandhurst or I was at some NCO training scheme. So all in all, it's something that is worth watching, especially with the use of, uh, of equipment just and use of people. Uh, talking about equipment, just briefly, pictures emerged this week which seem to suggest that the Taliban might be being armed by the Russians. Do you think this is true? Yeah, they're picking up sniper rifles and heavy machine guns. And what they do, they go over into Tajikistan, where the Russians are there, and hand out uh, the, the, this, this weaponry. And there was a piece in, uh, in one of the Russian uh, newspapers on, on, I think I saw it on Monday, uh, Zemir Kabulov, who was the man who was, who was this sort of, I don't know, ambassador-type guy to Afghanistan for President Putin, a personal envoy. And he says, we're doing this sort of thing, or where we're doing this sort of thing, or where we might be doing this sort of thing. We're doing it because everybody else has actually screwed up on the job. And somehow we are trying to cause the balance. Now, causing the balance by arming uh, uh, Taliban uh, doesn't seem sort of quite right, except to get them from the Pakistans anyway. Mm, let's move on to another part of the world now. The, the new French president, Emmanuel Macron, has brought the two main sides in the Libya conflict together. There's to be an election for a new president next year. Christopher, um, does this mean the end of the two-government situation? Well, it, it, it could do. Now, what it is, we, if you think we've got one lot who's, the, who's backed by the United Nations, recognised by the nations as a unity government, I, a government that brings all sorts of sides together, uh, and that's, uh, that's run by a guy called Fariz uh, Siraj. Then you've got a military side, which is, which is General uh, uh, Kefifa Khattar. Now, he is the person that's moved on this. Haftar is moved in as much he's moving towards the military government, uh, to have a military government as well as a, a government in Tripoli. What they're going to do next is have not just elections as for president, but elections for, uh, uh, for a parliament. If that happens, the French have succeeded. It's the sort of thing that uh, when President Sarkozy tried to, uh, to create it, he, he caused a lot of problems without, throughout Europe by saying, oh, France isn't trying to do this, and France is in fact trying mm. to do it. What about the fact that the French went on their own to do this? Uh, they did. They went on their own. What they've done, they've just jumped ahead. And where, the, where they've succeeded, I think, is getting, in, getting alongside General Haftar who has got the power, he's got the, he's got the army, literally. And if he can bring, and he's got Egyptian, Egyptians behind him, if we're going to see uh, a Libyan army, and we're going to see the United Nations-supported uh, 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 civilian government together, then Libya stands a chance. And I think that this week has started the process that could exactly bring that about. Now, a Royal Air Force typhoon based in Romania was scrambled this week in response to Russian aircraft flying near NATO airspace over the Black Sea. Operating from an airbase near Constanta on the Black Sea coast, the RAF jet responded to Russian strategic bombers heading south. Well, afterwards, Wing Commander Andrew Coe, commanding officer of 135 Ex Expeditionary Air Wing, told me what happened. 
Just standard, almost as if we were at home, really, Kate. But um, we got uh, talked to, or we were tasked by Kate Torreon. Uh, they're over in Spain. They're our tasking authority. Uh, they picked something up on the uh, up on the radar in the Black Sea, kind of near the Romanian sort of airspace, NATO airspace that we're here to patrol and uh, and look after. Um, and uh, a couple of blips, if you will, on the radar appeared. Uh, we were tasked to go and initially. Uh, launch first off so uh, our scramble went as per planned so I was really pleased with that and the team's uh, response um, and actually a little story for you one of my little guys was uh, actually caught short in the shower so he was running to the scramble in his pyjamas and a dayglow vest which was quite amusing but uh, but there we go uh, but uh, the guys got airborne in good stead and they were tasked actually just to shadow at the time so uh, rather than go up and on the wing off it was more of a you know we're here we know that you're there um, so they would have known that we were scrambled and, uh, and ready to go uh, but it looks like uh, two Russian aircraft um, just to the east of uh, Romania. Um, they progressed down to the south, uh, sort of near to Bulgaria, off to Turkey, and then they went back home to Russia. So nothing unprofessional about what they were doing, but um, it was a good response from NATO. Are you surprised that you've been there for three months and that this is your first scramble of this kind? Um, not really. Um, there was a lot going on, as you know, all to the eastern side of NATO and obviously the western side of Russia. So um, everyone's been really professional. There's a lot going on in the in the Black Sea. And obviously one of the things that we're here to do is um, sort of uh, look after, work alongside our Romanian uh, sort of kin, if you will, and just sort of protect airspace. So nobody knows what the other side is going to do. But it's just one of those things. So we were here to sort of... Uh, be here to uh, enhance the air policing as it were and to reassure and obviously uh, you know there's never a timeline who's going to do what so never surprised but it was um it was almost nice to do, put our operations into effect today just to outline to us the kind of assets you have okay kate so um first off and my most important assets my people so i've got 150 people from all around the royal air force um, we're looking after a small detachment from three squadron rf coningsby so i've got four typhoons here and as you know, those are the typhoons that are on the QRA back in the UK 24-7, and we're doing exactly the same mission out here. You mentioned that you're getting your communication command and controls from Spain. What kind of restrictions are there on the exercises you can do? Uh, not so much, actually. Um, so I've got really good um, relations with, my, with the team that we work for via NATO, but obviously I'm still working back at home for, for the UK and for, for the RAF and sort of wider UK defence. So actually, some of the exercises we've been doing here are actually part of the mission as well. So it's that reassure piece. It's the working alongside our NATO partners we don't normally get to work with. So I've been flying with uh, the Romanian MiG-21s with their helicopters. We're based here with the US Army, so we've been flying with their Black Hawk helicopters as well. We've worked with Romanian F-16s. We've been in exercises down in Bulgaria, in Bulgarian airspace, working with MiG-29s. Uh, we've actually deployed over to Hungary for a week. Uh, we've been flying in exercises over there and uh, hopefully later on uh, in August sometime we're looking to uh, get ourselves over to Turkey to be operating and working with our Turkish colleagues as well. Now you mentioned that the scramble that you've had in the Black Sea, what are the terms of reference and rules of engagement? Do they remain the same or are they revised and reviewed regularly? They're always reviewed and, and revised. I mean, we're, 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 we're always working to what we do back in the UK. I mean, NATO, as you know, is, is, is Europe-wide and, you know, and over to the States, etc. as well. But you know, we are working to one sort of law, if you will. We're working to shape, you know, we're working to Ramstein, to all our sort of... Uh, 
our masters, if you will, at the wider and the higher levels. So, no, what I do here, I know, has uh, implications across NATO. So, uh, I work and do exactly as the chaos tells me to do in Spain, and, and nothing more than that. That was Wing Commander Andrew Coe speaking to me from Romania. Now, Christopher, final thought this week. The world's oldest active warship has gone back to sea. I've seen her. She was built in 1797 Mm. in America. She's American, the USS Constitution. She is manned still. She's sail, obviously. She's manned still by enlisted men. uh, And she's just come out of refit. She's the toughest old ship. She's all wooden. She's called Ironsides because white oak was put in that ship and British cannonballs bounced off the wood. But she's still in commission. She still goes to sea. She has a, she has a full U.S. Navy captain. They're all the, uh, the, the crew are enlisted men and she sails to sea. Now, she does that, unlike HMS Victory, sadly, who's about the same sort of period, who sits in a dry dock. Is it like an ambassador role that she has then? No, it's just rather nice to have her sailing out of Boston. I mean, Boston's a big seaport type of place like that, or along that coast anyway. And, and But she's got this claim, which I think is worth having, the oldest warship that is still in commission, still goes to sea, and she goes out into the Atlantic with the, I think it's 40 of the original 70 sails. I mean, 18th century sails and they go and do it. And I think that's just a lovely sort of lovely thing to remember when poor old Victory is sitting there in the dry yeah, dock, yeah. sort of falling to bits and every day. And you know the cannonballs? Somebody told me the other day the cannonballs in HMS Victory are fiberglass. Hmm. And do you think the Royal Navy can draw any lessons from this success of this sailing? Oh, yeah, it should do for HMS Constitution because HMS Constitution sank half the Royal Navy in the Battle of 1812. There you are. And that's, that's all we have time for today. Tell us what you, yeah, this week. You can tweet us at BFBS SITREP. Never miss an episode. You can subscribe to this show as a podcast. Just search online for BFBS SITREP. I'll be back same time next week. Thanks for listening. From me, Kate Jabot. Bye-bye for now. The best of British news, sport and entertainment for the British forces overseas. This is BFBS Radio 2. Radio 2.